Uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to thank our uh, community group leaders. Our community group leaders, our community groups are taking a break for the holidays, so they're going to take a break for a few weeks. Um, our leaders of our many groups serve uh, every week. They prepare, they come ready, they come ready to discuss, come ready to um, facilitate conversation. They come, uh, they put a lot of time and energy in before the group even meets together. And then not only are they opening their homes, are they spending time serving one another, um, but they do a lot to really care for our group and care for our church and help foster community. So everybody who's a community group leader, thank you very much for the ways you serve our church. Uh, if that's something you're interested in, let us know. Let me know. I'd love to get you plugged in and get you trained up so maybe we can get you plugged in for the fall. So uh, thank you um, for all our community group leaders. So um, this morning, as we've talked about, we are in the season of Advent, the season of waiting. And we're almost done waiting because Christmas is close. It is like we could taste it, we could see it from a distance close. And so throughout this uh, Advent season, we've been studying different Christmas carols. We've been looking at the theology wrapped up in these songs that permeate throughout our culture. As we are in this season of waiting, we talk about what do we do while we wait, we sing. And we've been singing these songs, and we've been looking at the theology of these songs where these songs that are in every coffee shop, they're in every store, they're everywhere all the time, and they are pulled straight from Scripture. And this morning, we're going to continue with that. We're going to look at the song, Joy to the World. If you didn't get a bulletin when you came in, uh, you can grab one at the front, and it's got the lyrics that we're going to be jumping around in. Um, we're going to be looking at the, word, the song, Joy to the World. We're going to look at the history of the song in a minute, but history and my mother-in-law will both tell you this is not a Christmas song. It was never intended to be a Christmas song. And yet, it is one of the most famous Christmas songs in all of existence, because it's a song about joy. Joy is a regular buzzword of the season of Christmas. Commercials and ads from different groups and companies want to try and tell us what joy is. Joy is a new car. Joy is shiny jewelry. Joy is the latest tech. Joy is a great cup of coffee. Those things aren't bad, amen, to a good cup of coffee. But those things won't last, and they just don't produce Joy, because joy is a byproduct of something else. It is a byproduct of something greater, of someone greater. Joy comes from the assurance that God is who he says he is. It is not based on emotions or feelings or experiences. It's not even based on your situation. The Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. He can't do that if joy is based on our circumstances, because when he writes that letter, he is chained to a wall under house arrest awaiting trial where he might die. And yet, at the same time, he says rejoice, because joy is based on something bigger, something greater. It is based on who God is. It's knowing that he is faithful, knowing that he is love, knowing that he is who he says he is, and knowing that at the end of the day, when all of the smoke clears, when the battles have been fought, it will be God who stands victorious to reign and rule over all for all time. And when we think about who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he offers us in his death and resurrection, and what the gospel does for us, both here, now, and later in eternity, it truly is a joy for all people. And so this morning, we're going to talk about joy. So before we get into that, I want to read from uh, the book of Luke, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. So um, Luke 2 says this, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we have the ability to come together and worship you. Oh God, you are our strength and our stronghold, our refuge in the day of trouble. It's to you who we run to. We come to you for rest, for hope, for guidance, for safety, for truth. We just, we come for you. We come here to engage with you, to worship you, to hear from you. And so, Lord, as we study your word this morning, may it fill us, may it strengthen us, may it encourage us, may it challenge us, may it do all of the things that the Bible is meant to do. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So as we've been doing, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on this song, Joy to the World. It was written by a man named Isaac Watts. Um, He wrote many, many hymns. He also wrote paraphrased versions of the Psalms, and sometimes he wrote hymns in relation to those paraphrasings, which is what we have here today. As I said, this is not intended to be a Christmas song. I had you turn to Psalm 98 because it's Psalm 98 that he uses as inspiration for this song. The song was first published in 1719, and the original version often had the instruction when it was printed, it said, sing all entitled in common meter. I have no idea what that means. Thank you, Dave Rico. (laughs) By the late 1700s, it was printed with multiple different pieces of music, none of them resembling what we actually sing today. It wasn't until 1848, over 100 years later, when a man named Lowell Mason published the song with the tune that we know today. And by that point, the music had sampled notes and arrangements from a variety of other hymns. And even Mason's version has borrowed from multiple spots in Handel's Messiah. This is a song that was not meant to be a Christmas carol. It has been tweaked, edited, and took samples from many different outlets over the course of over 100 years, and yet it has become the most published Christmas hymn in North America. Why? Because the song is rooted in a psalm of pure joy. It's a psalm of pure adoration and celebration. And the song itself is centered on the joy associated with Jesus, which was prominent throughout the different encounters revolving around this baby boy entering into earth. It starts with the promise, even before Jesus is talked about, it starts with the promise of John the Baptist. An angel appears to John the Baptist's father, to Zechariah. He tells him his wife is going to give birth and promises in Luke 1. It says, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. The birth of this boy, John, will be great joy to others because John will grow up to prepare the way to get people ready for the coming of the Messiah. Through him and his ministry, many will experience joy because many will experience Jesus. Months later, when Mary and Elizabeth meet up, you have Mary pregnant with baby Jesus. You have Elizabeth pregnant with baby John. They get together, and Elizabeth tells Mary, 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Infant baby John's natural reaction to knowing he's in the very same room as the Messiah is to jump for joy. And months later, when the angel shows up to the shepherds to tell them that the Messiah has been born, the angels tell the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Everything surrounding the arrival of Jesus, his coming, and for us, his return speaks to joy. And so the psalm that sparked this song is one of joy and celebration. It's Psalm 98. So we're going to read it in one big chunk and then we'll kind of break it down. So Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Sing, rejoice, break forth in song, play instruments, clap your hands, celebrate what God has done. Verse 1 of our song, the most famous of the song, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Pulled straight from um, Isaac's paraphrase of verses 4 through 6 in Psalm 98. That make a joyful noise to the Lord, break forth into joyous songs and sing praises, sing before your king. When a king would enter into a town or visit a village, it was cause for celebration. There was great pomp and circumstance, resounding praise filled the town. It was all aimed and directed at that king. How much greater should our praise of Christ be? Because he is the one true, good, and perfect king. There is no need for us to worry about his leadership, his control, his protection of his people, for he is trustworthy, loving, righteous, powerful, and caring. He is the king of kings the one to which all others who claim any kind of temporary earthly authority, they receive that authority only by his word. He is in control of all things. And on the worth of his character, on top of that, the fact that his arrival, the fact that he shows up, that he is born in this tiny town of Bethlehem to a couple of nobodies, he's lying in a manger, is the culmination of a promise from God thousands of years before in the making. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit they were told not to, God shows up. He comes into what has been broken by sin. And he speaks to the serpent who tricked Adam and Eve. And he tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Satan, you may be able to orchestrate the execution of Jesus on a cross, but it is through that very same execution, through his death 
and his resurrection, he will stomp the head of that great serpent. His arrival, God entering into humanity, that is reason enough to celebrate. But if that's all that it is, if Jesus just comes into the earth and just hangs out for a while and then leaves, we're still stuck in sin. No, you see, we celebrate. We celebrate his arrival because it's not just his arrival. We celebrate the perfect life that he led, the death that he dies, the resurrection from the dead. It is because of that we receive life and faith through faith in him. See, whether or not this world understood it the first time, the one true king had come to earth. And though many misunderstood it, when he returns, there will be no misunderstanding the next time. You will know him and know his rule. Our song implores us, let every heart prepare him room. I pray that this, before Christ returns, before he returns to make all things new, I pray that you will know him. You will make room for him. That if you haven't put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that maybe today is that day. See, there was no room at the inn for Mary and Joseph and the baby. Do not let the circumstances, the busyness, and the business of this life distract you from making room for Jesus. There are many who choose to ignore Jesus and treat this life like it's the only one they have. But in reality, every one of us will spend eternity fully aware of where we are and what we are experiencing. It's a matter of where do you want to be? Eternally separated from the all-good creator of all existence whose desire is to care and love and protect you or with him? Because to ignore him, to make no room for him, is to cause yourself to spend eternity separated from God in hell. But there are also others who want to make room for Jesus, but just a little bit of room. He's not getting a whole room to himself. He's getting like half a closet at most. And even then, let's make sure Jesus stays in this place. You get control. You get to be Lord of my life in these three characteristics, these three areas. You can stay put but you don't get to influence the way I spend my time. You don't get to influence the way I spend my money. You don't get to influence the people that I date, the, purpose, the way I spend my time. Those things are mine, Jesus. Because for them, their faith is in something other than Jesus. They place their faith in themselves and their own goodness. If my good outweighs my bad at the end of the day, God's got to let me in. I can win my way to heaven. They place their faith in their family or friends who seem to know God so they can get in by association, as if heaven has a plus one situation going on. They place their faith in a specific denomination, organization, political party, or political leader, hoping if they pick the one that God most supports, somehow they're going to get in. Ladies and gentlemen, the king has come. His name is Jesus, and it is faith in him and him alone that saves you. It is faith in him alone that qualifies you to stand before God and be counted as righteous. Nothing and no one else can do that for you. And when we understand the reality and the seriousness of that news, it is no wonder that we should want to do anything other than rejoice and sing. The reality of who Christ is, and if you are a Christian, what Christ has done for you should cause you to make a joyful noise, to break out in song and sing praises, to grab the closest thing to you that will make some noise and make some noise.
In 2016, when the Cubs won the World Series, yes, it's a Cubs illustration, give me a minute. When they won, I went out on my porch and there was just perpetual noise for hours. There were cars whizzing by down Damon, honking their horns. You would get notes of Go Cubs Go or Sweet Home Chicago blasting from cars. Groups and groups of people were walking down Damon, heading to Addison to go to Wrigley. And they were singing or they were yelling. And many of them were just yelling, but it wasn't words. It was just a noise. It was just this guttural reaction to this awesome thing that happened. And it was great. It was a great night. And things like that, celebrations that cause within us that guttural exclamation of excitement are good. But they are the faintest sliver of a shadow, of an idea, of the joy and peace and love and goodness and satisfaction that is found in the presence of Jesus. Joy to the world because God entered into humanity. He died on the cross and he rose again and is seated in heaven victorious. Praise and sing to the king who has come and offers us new life. Verse 2 of our song says, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. That goes back to verse 1 of our psalm in Psalm 98, which says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. It's always amazing to me when we have in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, it talks about celebrate and rejoice in what God has done. Celebrate and rejoice in what God has accomplished. It's amazing to me because what they have at the time of the Psalms is that much. When they talk about celebrate and rejoice in what God has done, most of the time they're talking about the first five books of the Torah. They're talking about the history of their people. They're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The stories that are in those five books. They read those and they say, celebrate, sing a new song, rejoice in what God has done. And yet, what is revealed there, it's enough it's enough to say, yes, we should celebrate. Yes, we should sing. What we have seen God do has, should cause us to rejoice in a new way at all the marvelous things he has done. Marvelous means wonderful, wondrous, beyond the norm, extraordinary. Look at what God has done. And I read this psalm, and the psalmist is thinking back to those five books, and I think to myself, well, we're on this side of history. We got the whole thing. And on top of that, we got another how many thousands of years of history. We have our own personal experiences. We have our own personal lives. We have seen God move in way more marvelous ways. We can look back to, and celebrate the same way. We can celebrate the crossing of the Red Sea. We can celebrate all of the things that we've seen God do in the first five books of the Bible. But then we have everything he does throughout that. The judges and prophets who send the gospels themselves, the start of the New Testament church. We have our lives, we have our friends' and family's lives, we have so much more evidence to say, wow, our God is marvelous, he is big and awesome. Of course we should sing, for he has done marvelous things. This is the time of year to stop and celebrate them. Um, we do a members meeting twice a year 
uh, at CF. We do one in May and one in November. So if you're a member, May, it's coming, okay? Just start preparing the calendar now. We do them twice a year. And something we started doing a couple of, a couple of months back, um, a couple of meetings back, was that we want those meetings to be about the business of the church. And the business of the church is the people of the church. And so we cut out a, a large chunk of the time. Most of our member meetings is spent talking about us. And we have a, a large chunk of the time dedicated to just celebrating what God's doing in our lives. Celebrating not only the things he's doing amidst, in, our, in our midst as a church, but just as individuals. How have we seen God move in the last six months? And just people just share. It's just like popcorn. People just share in God's, God's goodness, God's awesomeness, and the, the amazing things he's been doing. And we just get to share and rejoice in it. And I love doing it. I look forward to it. To see as people take some time to stop and think, look at all the things God has done in the last six months. Make note, write it down, tell somebody, come back to those things often because God is always at work. But we got to take some time sometimes. We get caught up in the busyness and the running around of life. You got to take some time for a second and just do a little bit of a recap. Look at the last week, two weeks, month, two months, three months, year, and say, where did I see God move? And then rejoice in that, celebrate that because he's at work. If you go to verse, verse one and two of our psalm, Verse 2 really says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. That word salvation is Yeshua. It means to rescue, to help, to deliver. In Matthew 1.20, the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall, name his, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name is derived from the word for salvation. He is salvation made known. He is the righteousness of God revealed to all the nations. He is God in the flesh. You want to know how God would act? You want to know what God thinks and how he would interact with this world? You look to Jesus because that's what you're seeing. You're seeing God engaged in the world around him. We see in verse 3 of our psalm, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of the promise God made in the garden. God has proven time and time again he is faithful, he is trustworthy, he is dependable, he is timely, he is purposeful. In the same way that he remembered and kept his promise to Israel that he would send one to deliver them, Jesus himself promises to us that he will return. In John 14, 2, it says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And then again in Mark 16, it says, The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus has promised us he will return. And when he returns, it will not be as the son of the carpenter. It will not be the homeless rabbi from, from Nazareth, and it will not be as the suffering servant. 
Revelation 19 gives us this picture of Jesus upon his return. It says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who comes back. Not the suffering servant. Not the guy from the little town in the middle of nowhere. Everything about his return will declare who he is. King of kings and Lord of lords. Salvation has come in Jesus and he will come again to judge, restore, redeem, and renew. To bring about the fullness of the kingdom of God. This existence-altering reality of the first and second arrival of the Son of God causes not only us to take notice, not only us should we respond and sing, but the fields, floods, rocks, hills, and plains, creation itself cries out in worship of its creator. Psalm 66, 4, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Jesus, when he's entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people are singing his praises, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And in Luke 19, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. Because creation itself can't help but worship the creator God. Verse 3 of our song says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, no thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is one of those spots in the song that clearly shows this isn't a Christmas song. And actually, sometimes in history, this verse is just removed and not sung because it doesn't really fit with the Christmas theme, right? Because you don't have to look very far or very hard to see that sin and sorrow still grow. That thorns still infest the ground. But this is not exclusively looking at the return of Christ. This is looking at both his original return, his original arrival, but also his return. This is a both and kind of thing. Because in his first arrival, when Christ first came to earth, in his coming to earth, he did significant work to push back on the effects of the curse of sin in our lives now. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We were under wrath, but through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are freed from that and offered forgiveness and new life and hope. Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ's life, death, and resurrection frees us from the wrath of God on sin. Removes any and all condemnation our sins may have inflicted on us. He was doing a work against this curse of sin even in his first arrival. 
but it also speaks to that day when Christ returns, when there will be no more death, no more sickness, no more pain, when he will wipe away every tear from our eye, when the trials and tribulations and darkness of this world will be long gone. That day when he makes all things new, when sin and sorrow is gone, and even the creation we dwell in has been renewed. We looked at the promise that God makes to the serpent, that promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3. There's also a promise to Adam in Genesis 3:17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. But in Christ, those things are being removed. He has come to renew and redeem and restore even the very creation that we exist on. The peace with God that Jesus delivers to us through our faith in him reaches beyond just our relationship with God. He does bring peace where we were enemies against God. By our very nature, Christ intercedes his perfect righteousness for us. We can have peace with God, and that peace then flows into peace with one another and even peace with creation. The relationship between humanity can have peace because of our relationship with God and then even with creation itself. I've said multiple times throughout this series, true peace can only be found with God through faith in Christ. This future day, with the end of sin and sorrow, the renewal of creation, it reminds us, yes, we are waiting. It reminds us that we wait here actively, expectantly, because that day is coming when he will return and we don't know when. Verse 4 of our song says, reminds us of what that future day is going to look like. It says, he rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This is what the reigning Savior, the bringer of salvation and righteousness revealed, does. He rules. He rules with truth and grace, both of which he is the very embodiment of. He is the very origin of. He makes, compels the nations to come and prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. To prove is to test. Let's see if it's reliable. All people, one day, you're going to have to decide, is Jesus who he said he is or is he not? Is he reliable or not? Eventually, all people, all the nations will face his grace and righteousness and love, the truth that he brings, and it will either be a moment to rejoice in and of joy and faith or sadness and rejection. Where do you stand with Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? May this be the year, may this be your first Christmas where you come to know and experience the great joy and grace and mercy and hope and newness and life found by placing your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is something you can do right now in your head just between you and God. There is no magic formula. There is no certain acts you have to go through. It's a conversation between you and God where you admit your need for a Savior. You tell God that you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you choose Jesus over anything else. And in doing that, you are welcomed into the family of God. And if that's you today, if today is that day for you, tell somebody. Mark it on your Connect card. Tell the person next to you. Tell me. Tell somebody because it's good news of great joy that you have received the good news of great joy. And for those of you who have already put your faith in Christ, who for you this is 
you've gone through the gospel, you've gone through the nativity story, you've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times, you grew up in church, those of you who have already put your faith in Christ, let me leave you with an encouragement and a reminder. First, the encouragement, Luke 2.10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The truth that you know, the life-changing gospel message that you know, that you have put your faith in. It is good news of great joy. It's a good thing. Don't treat it like that shameful secret you have to sort of, kind of, on Facebook. You know, I'll share it by, like, I'll like this article on Facebook that's semi-positive about Jesus, and that's me declaring my faith in him. Sometimes we see this idea of go and share the gospel with others as this hardship, this burden. Well, what if they get mad? Well, what if we get into an argument? Well, what if they don't like me? What if they judge me afterwards? You are bringing good news of great joy. It is great joy to everyone. It is a blessing and a benefit, not a burden or an issue. This is why we've put an emphasis on our, in our community groups about sharing our stories, learning how to share our stories and talking about what God has done in our lives. I'm not saying go attack somebody with the gospel, try and shut them down and outwit, outsmart, outplay them. Rather, share your story of who you were before Jesus, how Christ saved you through his death and resurrection and what he is doing in and through you now. Don't be afraid of the reaction. Don't be concerned that you have to try and save everybody. That's not your job. Your job is to step into the opportunities God presents you. The Holy Spirit is in you and with you and working in those moments. Just be willing to step in when he provides you the opportunity so that God can use you. And now the reminder. Rejoice. Rejoice because God sent Jesus into the world to be our Savior. Rejoice because Jesus is the good and righteous king come to earth to rule and to reign. Rejoice because Jesus has come to defeat sin, death, hell, and because Jesus will come to make all things right, to redeem and renew and restore everything that has been broken by sin. In the next few days, you may have to travel. You may have gifts to wrap. You may have gifts to buy. You got parties to be at. You got emotions and situations to deal with. Do not let what has become the busyness of the season stop or distract you from rejoicing in the reality that Christ has come to earth on a mission of hope and love to die on the cross for our sins and is coming again to reign and to rule. He brings joy, a confidence in God that he is in control of all things, which should lead us to be able to praise and worship him regardless of our circumstances. May this week, may the rest of this year and the rest of your life be grounded, rooted, and secured in the joy brought to you through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, for this chance to gather, to worship, to prepare ourselves even now for this week coming. God, as we take time to stop and reflect and just be in the presence of you, be reminded of the love and mercy and grace you showed us at the cross, be reminded of the love and mercy and grace you showed us even in sending Christ. 
the unconditional love that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus. Lord, you have shown us over and over again, you are good. You are trustworthy. You are faithful. You are exactly who you say you are. And so we have seen how we can trust you in the past, and we know we can trust you with our future. We can trust you with our eternity, and we can trust and know that Christ is coming back to reign and to rule. And Lord, as we wait, as we are in our season of Advent, help us to wait actively. Help us to wait with intentionality. Help our waiting to look like rejoicing in you, celebrating you, praising you, worshiping you, and help our waiting to look like actively going and sharing this reality and this truth with others. Being the lights of the world you have called us to be, to share the good news of great joy that is for all people, that Christ has come, the Messiah has come, he has died, he has risen again, and there is life to be had through faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray if anyone here doesn't know you, hasn't put their faith completely and wholly only in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that right now, that today, right now is that moment where you break down whatever walls and barriers they have up and they confess their sins and admit and put their faith in Christ and him alone, that they come to experience what it's like to be a son or daughter of you. Lord, help us as we get wrapped up in the fun and celebrations of this year to be able to stop, to slow down, to reflect on the marvelous works you have done, and to celebrate and rejoice in who you are. Lord, we pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.